I want to welcome you to the Clark Howard Show, where our mission is to serve you and empower you so you make better financial decisions in your life. And it's been a while since I talked about this, but shockingly, people again are buying homes sight unseen from across the country. I need to give you a warning about this. This was last really big 15 years ago, I guess. People are doing it again. And later, I have to brag on one of my favorite girlfriends. No, I'm not cheating on my wife. It's Costco Wholesale. We call these companies that I really, really love how they do business, my girlfriends on the staff. And I'm going to fill you in on why they do so well and why it's there for you is something that can really potentially help you stretch your wallet. And so I want you to know we got something for you, our free newsletters for Clark.com and ClarkDeals.com. We send you advice about your wallet and deals each and every day if you want it totally for free. Go to Clark.com slash newsletters to learn what we've got. So long, long ago and far, far away, during the housing bubble, it was a thing where people were buying houses in what seemed like hot markets, sight unseen, not knowing the city, the community, the neighborhood, nothing. They were just buying them. I still remember a call from a gentleman just before the bubble burst who was buying a condo in Florida, buying in a condo building in Florida that was under construction. And he was running by his scenario to me that he was planning to buy 10 of the units in this as yet unfinished condo. And I started asking him questions. I said, how much do you know? It was in Fort Myers, Florida. I was asking, how much do you know about Fort Myers? He said, I don't even know where it is on a map. I was like, I didn't say this. It was like, dude. And I was like, go there, learn the market. But buying 10 places, it was when you could buy as an investor, really speculator, you could buy places, no money down. And the banks were just handing the money out and looking the other way. And he was of a mind, as so many other people I heard from, that values were going up so much every year that he was going to take the bank's money and make this huge amount of money. Well, we know what happened with all that in Fort Myers, as many other places in the country. We had this massive wave of foreclosures. People just walked away. Arizona got hit with huge numbers. But the one that still I remember so well is there became this buzz about what now is the second hottest market in the United States, Idaho. But it wasn't at that time. And people were buying real estate in Idaho in 2005, 6, and 7 having never been to Idaho, never seeing the places, and they were buying them with no money in the game at all, just with bank money, and and that did not end well. Now, you got to have money in the game. 
and people aren't doing this on these crazy speculative bets. They're doing it as a place to live in, buying a home sight unseen, not knowing the neighborhood, not knowing anything about the area, buying them. Please don't do this. Please don't do this because the stakes are actually much higher now than they were 15 years ago because this is where you're going to live. You don't want to get into something that you can't get out of easily and you want so badly to own a home, but buying one you've never seen in an area you don't know Even if you know the area, buying a home sight unseen, pictures don't tell you what you need to know. Ask anybody who's rented an Airbnb if that's not true. But this isn't an Airbnb you rented for a couple of nights. This is the home you're committing to buy. Don't do it. I do want to talk about strategies that help with affordability. And I'm turning what I have always said with advice upside down, inside out. I've always said that when you are looking for a home, particularly if you're moving to a new city, that you get out there and you learn what areas of town or a metro area appeal to you, what neighborhoods appeal to you, what streets appeal to you. So I've always done this thing where you start with a funnel and you narrow it to where you really feel like is right for you. Maybe if you have kids, you worry about the schools, whatever it is that you find, what's your funnel? Now I got to turn it all upside down because what's happening, particularly across the South and the West, where you have this massive sprawl of metro areas, even in mid-sized markets, you've got this enormous sprawl, is that you're ending up with a huge number of sub-markets. And the price points of real estate vary so much by sub-market. It could be that, okay, on the west side of the metro area, there are areas where home prices are half what they are on the north side of the metro area, or whatever the combination would be. And there's more and more data you can see based on geography in a metro area. And so in these sprawl zones in the south and the west, you're going to find the similar amenities. You're going to find homes that look very similar. You're going to find all those things, but what you're going to find that's going to be different is the price of that home. And so in today's very, very hot housing market, I want you to look at the metro area you're looking to move to in a whole different way. Um, You may find available just by searching online what the average home price is in different counties that make up a metro area. And there are worse things you could do than start at the three cheapest counties in a metro area and start looking at them is places to buy a home. And you may find reasons that would eliminate all three of those cheaper counties. But I just want you to know that in a market where affordability is really, really stretched, being uh, very strategic about your initial search 
based on average price points in an area will get you to something. It's like turning back the clock to getting a more affordable home. Just an idea for you. And I think about your brother-in-law who lives in what is now the most expensive county in the metro area he lives in. Mm -hmm. Lives in a beautiful neighborhood. But that same house in another county could be a third of the price of what that very nice home is they have in the county they live in. And that's an approach I want people to think about is instead of what I've always said is you pick the neighborhood first, especially if you're a first-time home buyer trying to stretch those dollars, I want you to be thinking about where in that metro area it's actually not going to make your wallet wheeze. My other brother-in-law and sister-in-law just sold their house and the person bought it in cash over asking price, no inspection, no contingencies, nothing, and is letting them stay for a couple of months for free. For free? Just to get the house. And are they using this as a one-time opportunity to move to a cheaper area or cheaper part of the country? They, they're they moving to a different part of the country, and I think it might be similar cost, but it's where they've always wanted to move. You know, I'm excited for them. So we'll see what happens. This is a question from Natalie in Ohio. I'm 34 and recently divorced, and I'm looking to buy my first home. I applied for a mortgage through my local credit union and was approved. I'm starting to look at houses, but the market is insane. The housing costs in my area have nearly doubled since just about five years ago. I have a good income and very little debt. However, I'm worried about buying a house when the costs are this high. Given everything going on with inflation and just the world in general, do you think it would be smarter to just wait until the market goes back down? My current dilemma is that I already pay $1,600 a month in rent and they want to raise it another 200 a month. What are your thoughts? So first of all, even when the housing market cools down, it doesn't mean we're going to see precipitous declines in the price of homes. I mean, there would have to be catastrophic events in the world that would make that happen. We have no conditions similar to 15 years ago when there were way too many housing units in the country. Today, there are too few. So any softness in pricing will not be a collapse in pricing. The way I look at this right now, Natalie, is that if you're looking at buying a home at 34 that you would be happy being in for a decade or longer and you can afford the home you want to buy, go ahead and do it. Because even if the market does soften at some time in that decade, historical averages show that you'll be fine over the years and you will have locked in your housing price. Now, the interesting thing is interest rates on mortgages are double what they were a couple of years ago. And they may go up more from here. And then as the economy slows and inflation gets under control, mortgage rates will go back down. And then you'll be almost certainly able to refinance as long as the value of the home has held up. And so you have an opportunity that if your buying cycle is long enough that you won't have to worry as much about today's prices being inflated and today's mortgage rates being higher. On the other hand, if you don't know where your life's going to be five years from now, you're not really sure, you would not be settled in a place, you'd be comfortable living, at, you think about yourself 
at 44 years old, will you still be comfortable living in that same house, same neighborhood? Then I think in today's circumstances, today's conditions, it would be better to rent. This is from Anthony in Nevada. I'm an active duty military member, and I anticipate moving to a new duty location in the next six months. Should I sell or rent my home that has about $130,000 in equity? I also plan on moving back to Las Vegas, where the home is, and retiring in four years. Wow. Okay. So what an interesting dilemma. You own this home. You're probably locked in at a very low interest rate right now. If you didn't also say that you're planning to move back in four years after your wonderful service to our great nation, when you retire in four years, I would say sell the property. You've got enormous embedded gain and I start fresh at some point in the future, but because you know you're looking at 48 months, I mean, let's measure this in months till you're going to be back. And obviously, from what you've said, you like the home, you like the neighborhood. If it's a neighborhood and home, you'd be comfortable retiring to. I think you keep the home, rent it out for the four years, and you go back to that home at retirement. Again, Anthony, thank you for your service. This is from Danielle in Georgia. Our family recently got some to-go subs from a chain, which we ordered and picked up in person. We used a coupon that we got in the mail and got three foot-long subs for $17.99, and we added a $6 tip. 8% sales tax is added before the tip. So you would think we paid $19.43, right? Wrong. We were charged a service fee of 6%, a $1.08 in this case. Okay, that's not a ton of money, but what gives? I feel like the menu price of prepared food at a restaurant should include the labor it takes to make the food. Am I crazy? Are there other businesses I should ask if there will be a service charge before I agree to the service? What if I go to buy a car and someone adds an additional 6% on top of this tax as a service fee? Yikes. Who would have thought there would be hidden fees on a sandwich? So, Danielle, what an interesting thing you bring up in the example you gave of the car. So car dealers have what are called packs where they add on all these fees when you buy a car, including delivery fee of some kind, not the destination charge, but they'll have some kind of fee they charge you that often is $699 or $399 or $999 that is just a made-up fee they charge you, a documentary fee or something like that, a paperwork fee. It's just a phony baloney added on charge. Hotels do it with the crazy resort fees that they charge. The airlines are the kings and queens of having fees for everything. It is a part of modern uh, American corporations that they tease you in with a price and then you get there and there's this added junk fee. And look what happened. Look how alienated you are from this sandwich shop that you used a coupon got a deal got footlongs for six bucks each on this deal and tipped six dollars and then tipped a wonderful amount of money and then on top of it what annoyed you was a dollar and eight cents and a made-up fee you know when you're a business owner i want you to think about that when you hit somebody with a ufo charge 
what you could have done to maybe get loyalty out of someone, it boomerangs on you and takes loyalty away. And look how mad Danielle is. And Danielle, it is a terrible practice to do this by businesses. And just tell somebody, we're charging you more than we used to, and then you get to make a choice. But then giving you a price and then coming up with a junk fee at the end, that's not okay. So tell you somebody who does it right, Costco Wholesale. I want to tell you what is the secret sauce that has made them such a huge stock market hit, a hit with their employees and their customers. Who can pull that off? We hear examples on this podcast and in daily life. We experience things where people lose a certain amount of faith in capitalism. In fact, the word capitalism has a lot of negative connotations with people, which is hard for me because I'm such a free enterpriser. And I believe that ultimately you create so much more wealth for people over time when people run good businesses. They, they come up with innovations, products, services that improve our lives and make them money. I think about Walmart that has always had controversy around it. A lot of people unhappy over the years about how they've treated their employees and Walmart does a much better job by their employees than they used to. But I think of Walmart as perhaps the greatest anti-poverty program we've ever had in the United States because it has brought much more affordable goods to people. And if you don't make a lot of money, your dollar goes so much further at Walmart than it did before Walmart became this force in American retailing. And I think it's been great in other countries where Walmart has been successful. But there's a company that Wall Street used to hate, and they called it the world's largest co-op. And investment analysts hated Costco because Costco has a business model that people looking to make a quick score hate. They pay their employees unbelievably well. Someone without anything but a high school diploma can go to work at Costco and live overtime an upper middle class lifestyle and retire very comfortable, even potentially wealthy after working at Costco over a lifetime. And if somebody's been there a while and they get into a tiff with their supervisor, The supervisor, I don't know how many years you have to work there, the supervisor can't can you. I mean, it has to be like a whole process that you don't have to worry about, oh man, I ended up with that manager. That's the manager who's the kiss of death, who's going to, who just one day isn't going to like you and get rid of you. Can't happen there. They value their workers. They give part-timers health benefits. And then for customers, The maximum markup in the store is 15%. Most items was 14%. And so Wall Street's always hated Costco because of those two things, that they do everything they can to treat their employees well, pay them well, and then at the same time, they hold their markups down to the lowest in retail, 
lowest in America. And so they're like, hey, think how much more money you could make if you paid people a lot less money. If you went from full-timers to part-timers. Gosh, it almost destroyed Home Depot when they had this lame CEO a generation ago. Anybody who's an insider at Home Depot knows what I'm talking about who got rid of all their experienced people that worked on the floor and they went to part-timers who they paid very little money to and knew nothing about the various trades that people would come in and ask about, well, how do I do this to my toilet? And how do I, how do I put in this light fixture and all that? That was the thing that made Home Depot so special. And they've been fighting ever since to get back to that kind of thing with their customers. They got the wrong Wall Street message. Costco ignored the Wall Street message all those years. And now, guess who loves Costco? Wall Street has the highest, what's known as PE, anybody who's an investor regularly knows what I'm talking about, of any retailer in the country. They, they make mincemeat of Amazon. And the company now is worth more than a quarter trillion dollars. The stock is worth it because of how they treat people how they treat everyone involved. And so I want you to know that they are a special company because of the way they treat people to the point that I saw an item that Costco's thefts, internal theft and external theft, internal is where employees do it. That's called shrinkage. External is where a customer, in the case of Costco, a member might steal from them. Okay. They have one three hundredth of the theft problem of a normal retailer. One three hundredth. Because the people who work there, the people who shop there, they're loyalists. They value it. You know, it's really cute. Costco sells clothing to its members that they sell like Costco wholesale t-shirts, sweatshirts hats, Kirkland Signature, their private label, they sell all this stuff. And they sell zillions of dollars of it because the members are so excited to be members of the place, they want to wear the colors. So I want you to know that if you are somebody who doesn't believe that capitalists can do it right, they can. And what happens when they do it right is the stockholders make more money and everybody wins. I have a Costco question for you from Micah in Virginia to start Clark. He wants to know if they stop selling their Kirkland signature dress pants. Haven't seen them recently. They, I think they sell them Are they seasonal? when we move into the fall because people tend to dress up more. I don't wear the Kirkland dress pants because they're too expensive for me. <laughs> they're really, really Nice, high-quality pants, but they're more than I'll spend for clothing. Okay, this question's from Andrew in Tennessee. I'm a longtime listener and huge fan. I have a number of student loans with a total balance of about $70,000. Some of the loans have about a 7.5% interest rate. The interest compounds daily, and my question is whether it makes sense to throw daily or nearly daily small payments at the loans to try to beat out the obnoxious daily compounding. If my calculations are correct, this trick could save me several hundred dollars over the period of the loan, although I understand the benefit of this wanes over time as I pay more and more of the principal off. 
do you think this trick is worth my time and energy or have I taken this a step too far? Well, I love the way you're thinking. And it's like what I've talked about with paying off a credit card balance, which average credit card balance carries a much higher rate than even what we're talking about with your high interest rate student loans, that because credit card interest rates calculate daily, there's a real advantage to paying a credit card balance. Uh, What I've recommended in the past is pay it weekly or at least every other week because you're going to save all that interest over time. And there's a method called the Eisenson method, which I first talked about 20 years ago, where if you follow the method of how you pay your credit cards, you pay off the balance in one-fourth the time you would otherwise. And it involves the minimum payment and all that. I mean, huge benefit. You don't get the same kind of bang for your buck, in this case with the student loans, but paying uh, even weekly would have a cumulative beneficial effect to you on that loan balance with the student loans if you could set it up where you made even more frequent like daily seems a little too much maybe weekly just send in money weekly for the student loans and the impact will be very beneficial to you over time plus you have you feel like you're the boss of those $70,000 instead of it being your boss and this one's from Todd in Tennessee. Clark, the TSP is switching to a new plan administrator in June. Our ultra-low-cost retirement plan is trying to become a money grab for fat cat executives. Why? They're offering access to over 5,000 mutual funds with a minimum $10,000 investment for yearly administrative and trading fees. Please warn all the overworked, stressed-out government employees like myself to stay away from this garbage. Here's the fee schedule. A $55 annual administrative fee to ensure that the use of the mutual fund window does not indirectly increase TSP administrative expenses for participants who choose not to use the mutual fund window, a $95 annual maintenance fee, and a $28.75 per trade fee. And by the way, I've heard from a number of people who are federal employees, either military personnel or civilians with the federal government who are either curious or know that this is a terrible move. I love that it was referred to as garbage, that you do not want to take what is the best retirement plan offered in America and mess it up. If you want to go do something else other than what you get from the TSP, use other money and maybe in your Roth IRA, you want to invest in these other things do it there. You still won't have all these horrible fees that are being put on this as an option in the TSP. The TSP works. It's got good enough choices and it is so unbelievably well run and affordable. Don't mess up a good thing. Enough said about that, (laughs) although I'm sure we will hear more from people. As always, I want to know how much I value our community of listeners. And this is a perfect example. All the people who who were like members of Team Clark who got all over this new option with the TSP where we serve each other, we help each other. And I want to thank you so much for being part of Team Clark for today's podcast. 